0: Hey everybody, John Wilkinson here, and welcome to, I think we'll just call it season two of the Turnout Podcast. Life got a little busy for the last couple of months, so we had to take a little time off, but what better time to bring it back than right now? Everybody's stuck at home. Um, Tensions are high, but we're trying to maintain our wits about us here as we get through this quarantine and the COVID-19 pandemic. But hey, at least we still get some extra time with our animals. Um, thank goodness for that. Slow life down a little bit. I know it's going to be tough for a lot of people, but we'll get through it together. Um, what other choice do we have? So um, so here in season two of the Turnout Podcast, um, probably still do a A lot about animal science, that's kind of what what the focus is anyway, but today we're going to talk uh, a little bit about making a career of it here in the equine industry with uh, Dr. Patrick Lawless, who uh, is the actual founder and president of the sponsor of the show, Equithrive. Um, So talk to him a little bit about being an equine entrepreneur, uh, a little bit about the science behind the company and the products it makes, some other good stuff too, so definitely want to listen to this one tune in and turn out here we go I am joined now with uh, Patrick Alalis, Doctor Pat, as we know him around here. Um, he is the founder and president of Thrive Animal Health, which makes Equithrive and Pet Thrive. Pat, thanks for uh, coming all the way into your own office for this show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Interesting times. Have been uh, wearing many hats considering uh, the current circumstances. So I've been out there uh, assisting with manufacturing this morning. But uh, feels good to to go back out there and participate in manufacturing firsthand, and glad to join you today as well. So
0: we know you. We know what Equithrive is now
1: um, and Pet Thrive.
0: We know it's um, you know really established a foothold in the animal nutrition market. Obviously, there's a beginning to it, and so we we'll let people read your memoir if they want to know about you know your your young years. But let's start at the point um, maybe when you're finishing up your PhD. Biochemistry, and you're working in um, human human pharma, correct?
1: Yes, yes. Um, worked as a chemist in human pharma before I went back and did my PhD, and then while I was finishing my PhD, and then thereafter I worked for a small local biotechnology company that was mainly engaged in looking for new anti-inflammatory drugs. So that that was a really neat position that I had. Um, it's kind of one of those stories that you would read about or see in the movies and that I had that dream job and that I was uh, a botanist. So I would get sent all over the country, anywhere from Yellowstone National Park to the Everglades to collect different plant species And then I would, you know, identify those plant species, bring them back to the lab, make extracts of them, and then analyze them for various activities. And the company that I worked for uh, had a lot of grant money from the United States government. But I found that we were, you know, consistently seeking new grants and kind of lived hand to mouth. And that when you're in academia and then small spinoff biotechnology company, most of those companies are founded on government dollars. And so this was during, you know, the 2008 recession um, and soon thereafter. And so, you know, there wasn't as much grant money as had been available previously. You know, there would be gaps in funding. And I also was a little bit... um, disappointed that you know you didn't see more of the research actually entering the marketplace and helping humans and of course as I began to think about it animal health I really enjoy that nexus of seeing technology being commercialized and not only living in the lab but seeing it help humans every day in their daily lives and of course animals as well now too so after having kind of been in that post Doc position for a couple years, um, it made me wonder, well, you know, this is somewhat of a precarious situation. You know, should I look at going and teaching in academia somewhere? Should I look at, you know, going and just being a scientist somewhere within industry, in the pharma industry, so on and so forth?
0: But instead, you decided to uh, risk it all, correct? And start your own company. But I think I kind of want to talk about, because uh, we know what... Um, you know, your anti-inflammation has kind of you know, really put uh, your company now on the map. So, I mean, I know that, was, that that's what you were doing in your previous job. Were you working with a lot of the ingredients that you still, that you use now? Or, I mean, were you working on really anything that could potentially be used as an anti-inflammatory?
1: Yeah, really anything that could be used as an anti-inflammatory. So, you know, I wasn't, we did have compounds that we would use as, you know, natural compounds that we would use as controls. And we were trying to determine how strong of an anti-inflammatory or how strong of an antioxidant something was in comparison with a known substance. And so we did use resveratrol as a positive control in antioxidant and anti-inflammatory assays. But really, we were doing, you know, somewhat of a just a a broad survey of plants in the United States. You know, you you hear a lot about, you know, ethnobotany and people traveling to the tropics to go collect plant species. And it seemed like everybody just wanted to run off to the tropics. And, you know, my thought process was, is everybody's focusing on the tropics. But, you know, we've got tens of thousands of native plants here in Mm -hmm. the United States. Yeah. Why aren't we looking in our own backyard? Yeah, and you know the North American Native American population had been here for probably a shorter period right. of time than there had been Native populations in tropical regions. So I thought, well, you know, there are tons of plants here that have not been explored. So I basically was kind of given a travel budget, and they, bas- you know, I would have to go in and request permission to collect samples from national parks, national forests, so on and so forth. So I really was just trying to sample plant diversity, looking for anti-inflammatories. And, you know, there are many different classes of compounds that plants are known to possess that do have anti-inflammatory activity. So we're looking for, you know, anthocyanins, flavonoids, um, still beans, so on and so forth, but basically, we really weren't trying to target particular species of plants based upon what they were known to contain, just really kind of trying to do a broad survey so
0: is your medicine cabinet just full of leaves and stems?
1: <laughs> you know interestingly, I've kind of been on on both sides of the pharma spectrum, and that um you know I've been a chemist for a traditional pharmaceutical company that made anything from amino acids to controlled substances that would, we would then sell on to bigger companies um, that that would put it in finished dosage forms. And then I've worked on more of the, the natural side of um,
0: the wilderness,
1: the wilderness. Yes. And honestly, I don't take a lot when it relates to supplements or pharmaceuticals. Um, You know, I, I occasionally will take supplements. I do take resveratrol on a daily basis. That's the the one and only supplement that I do take on a daily basis. But, you know, I would say I relied just as much on pharmaceuticals as I do on uh, nutraceuticals or herbal types of products as well. So for me, it really all boils down to the science. So if herbal medicine, if there's a particular product that has good science behind it, I'll use it. And, and the same for pharmaceuticals, but I I'm not extremely crunchy and and sure. and just ingesting large amounts of nutraceuticals and, and supplements I mean, yeah. on a daily basis. <laughs> yes, that's correct.
0: And so we know resveratrol has become the kind of the center point for uh, your animal health products. So what came first? Was it the resveratrol that really inspired you to? Seek out uh, a company behind it, or did you start your company and then say, Well, let me see what I can work with, and then you land on Resveratrol?
1: It really was Resveratrol and the science behind Resveratrol that motivated me and gave me enough confidence to think that this is a unique enough uh, solution that is not currently available in the market that made me interested in forming my own company, developing. You know, the initial products that were, of course, resveratrol. You say that
0: not enough in the market in general or just animal health specifically market?
1: Um, I would say in general, I mean, resveratrol had been available as a very obscure supplement, you know, for a period of time. Um, But resveratrol was certainly not widely used as a human supplement and definitely not as an animal supplement. Um, when I when I was working as a scientist and considered forming my own company,
0: and so you decide to take the plunge, you quit your uh, dream job, um, and you start your company. Um, did you originally were you originally thinking dogs, horses? Um, I know you're you're in Central Kentucky, so it's hard to really avoid equine health when horses are the um, you know everywhere you look here. I mean, did it start with which 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 animal did you first approach?
1: I, I thought about horses first, largely because it was the situation with Barbaro that made me realize how few modern and safe anti-inflammatories were available. It was the combination of Barbaro's condition with laminitis or situation with laminitis, making me even consider animal health and to begin to think about, you know, the implications of all that i had been researching, how it could be applied to animal health. Um, And then, you know, just the combination of Barbaro and Resveratrol, honestly, is what put me in in that situation. And honestly, if I would not been doing a postdoc in Lexington, Kentucky and had not heard about Barbaro, on, on the nightly news, I would have never thought anything about it. You know, I wasn't raised in an equestrian family. My my mom and my grandparents had Tennessee walking horses that my, my mom and my aunt um, competed on while they were in high school, but were by no means an equestrian family historically. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of horses in the central Kentucky area. I did think about dogs for certain and thought that that would be um, you know, certainly realize that dogs experience arthritis, just like horses experience arthritis and metabolic syndrome, but just had more connections locally and animal health, um, in the equine side of the market, as opposed to the canine, you know, it wasn't hard to get introductions right. to veterinarians at Rudin Riddle right. or Haggard Davidson and McGeebs. So well, and I so feel forth. like
0: it could be kind of hard for them to call you back. If you say, Hey, listen, I got this new powder and it's the best, it's kind of Cure all the problems. I'm, I'm guessing you weren't that, you weren't selling it quite like that. But how do you go from an idea to of um, using a resveratrol on horses to actually formulating a product that actually works?
1: Well, it was certainly an unknown. Um, you know, typically what you would be doing in this type of situation when you had a compound that you thought had promise. And a target species, you would do what's called, you know, a dose-response curve. So you'd, you know, have a population of animals you'd work with, and then you'd mit- administer them increasing dosages of the active ingredient over a range of dosages that you felt would more than likely be safe. And, you know, as you can imagine, coming into the small business, having modest means um, you know, basically what we did is I, I looked at the literature and thought, okay, well, I think probably somewhere between 500 milligrams per day and 2000 milligrams per day, based upon the science that was out there, probably we're going to see a therapeutic effect in, in this range. And so I had met a track veterinarian from Churchill Downs, Dr. Rick Pelfrey, pretty early on, right after I'd formed the company. He was a friend of a friend and he was kind enough, you know, just to um, be able to trial some mm-hmm. of the some of the prototype products on some horses that were under his care. And so basically started out using 500 milligrams per horse per day, a thousand milligrams per horse per day, just kind of an anecdotal, just type of pilot study. Essentially he put the horses on the product. I think it was for 30 days. And, you know, after, after 30 days, he said, you know, 500 milligrams and eh, I can see some differences, I think in some horses, but at a thousand milligrams per day, I feel like I see a considerable difference in 90% of the horses. So it was literally one shed row under his care didn't receive any resveratrol. Another shed row received 500 milligrams a day. And then the third shed row received a thousand milligrams per day. And those horses were all under one one trainer's care who was also kind enough to allow us to use the product on the horses. So that's kind of how we came at the um
0: and at this point sorry it, it's basically just you i mean it's you you're doing the formulating you're manufacturing the prototypes and you're also going out and asking vets if they'll put this foreign just foreign ingredient into their horses and hope for the best so i mean that's got to be pretty much around the clock uh, job
1: yeah it definitely was i mean it forced me to you know, broaden my horizons, I feel like, and utilize probably some skill sets that i had had before that I had not utilized in a long time. I mean, I would characterize myself as an introvert pretty much, but an ext- extrovert when I need to be. So it, it definitely forced me out of my shell and out of my comfort zone and going and approaching people about things that they probably didn't want to hear about or were not interested in to begin with. I think one of the reasons that I had success is that veterinarians particularly veterinarians in the equine space um are constantly looking for to new technology mm-hmm. um, a better mousetrap to mm-hmm. try and manage these horses that you know can be s- somewhat problematic from the start and so being a scientist and trying to convey new technology that was available you know I felt like once I was able to get a veterinarian's time they were very impressed by and interested in the new technology that had come about because veterinarians at that point, you know, it's pretty much all Cox two inhibitors, right? It was, you know, one size fits all. So the true science behind resveratrol and networking through gene expression, rather than Cox two inhibition, I think really piqued a lot of their intellectual curiosities. So I think the fact that if I was just a pharmaceutical sales guy Mm -hmm. that just had a limited science background, I think this company would have gone nowhere. Hmm. Um, I think the fact that I came as a PhD scientist that I'd worked in inflammation research and they could tell that I genuinely was trying Mm -hmm, to improve the lives of animals and that there truly was something novel here. Mm -hmm. I think that's why they were willing to listen to me and at least give the product a try.
0: This is what, 2008, 2009?
1: Yeah, this would have been late 2008, early 2009. So, you know, in retrospect, you know, we were having the last major market recession and locally the thoroughbred industry was in free fall. It was doing a downward spiral where the amount of breeding was decreasing considerably, you know, so as I look back on this, I think, gosh, it's amazing that we <laughs> we ever made it as a company. You know, you hear the statistics about 90% of small businesses failing. I can't imagine, you know, the number of people that started a small business at the height of the 2008 2009 recession and are still here to talk about it and of course i think a lot of that is um, persistence stubbornness and and luck sure but Um, also
0: having something that works and i know so this is kind of the prototype for the equithrive joint with the resveratrol but that's actually not just resveratrol because like as as i've heard you say just if you just use resveratrol you know you really don't really know what you're Going to get out of it, whether it's even getting absorbed, what the pure, what the purity of it is. So, you found a way to ensure that it's the purest form and also that it gets absorbed, right?
1: Yes, yes. So, purity, especially in that early stage, was it was really hard to find extremely pure resveratrol, even the material that was being used by. Surtrus Pharmaceuticals, which was a Harvard Medical School spinoff. I'd met with, you know, the the founders of that company, the Harvard Medical School researchers, and, you know, even the product that eventually made it into clinical trials as a treatment for bladder cancer and type two diabetes, you know, they describe receiving these, you know, black tars and things like that, you know, unrefined products that would be like fifty percent resveratrol. So there there was a lot to finding a stable source of resveratrol that that was extremely pure and then there was a lot of uncertainty about the stability of resveratrol at that point which we know to some degree a lot of that's somewhat unfounded at this point um it is much more stable than we realized at that time there was a lot of concern about you know temperature stability exposure to you know just moisture in the air and then, in particular, um, exposure to UV light, and it seems that really, it's exposure to UV light that causes it to be more unstable than anything else. Um, but the combination of the low bio bioavailability and the lack of stability made me, you know, want to explore options to microencapsulate it to make it more stable and to make it more bioavailable.
0: Finally, you you start to get the the prototypes out there, you got the vets kind of helping you out and they're seeing good results, but you know, that's, it's still hard to sustain a business, you know, on, on just a a few anecdotal stories of success. So I know you're sort of kind of slowly building, um, kind of really get on the map when you get the clinical trial from Texas A&M, if I'm correct. I mean,
1: yeah, um, I would say b- before the Texas A&M clinical trial, we actually had gone to kind of fill in the blanks between let's say Please 2009 do, yes. and let's 2013, we actually started the clinical trial in 2013. So during those four years, I believe it was in late 2009 or 2000, early 2010, you know, I'd basically, the vets that used it liked it, you know, and I'd generally go to them, hey, I'm a scientist here trying to start a company. Will you, will you help me out? Will you tell me a couple other veterinarians that you're good friends with from vet school that you think this might benefit their practice? So there were, you know, a lot of veterinarians that were kind enough to help a, a young, um, very business illiterate scientist try and find his way. And so that kind of helped us build momentum, even when the market was in a downturn. And then when once we'd reached a critical mass, um, I got an introduction to one of the nation's largest veterinary distributors uh MWI veterinary supply and so we went on an exclusive with them for a couple of years and so then we went from it being hey this is pat lawless and Mm -hmm. he is the company to at least being able to utilize you know 300 or so sales reps for a large veterinary pharmaceutical distributor which stepped us another you know bumped us up another step to where we had national distribution. Now we're not only in the Southeastern United States, but um, we're also being widely embraced in California as well. But then we reached a point where I felt like, you know, most veterinarians, you know, again, they are scientists and they do want to see hard science behind Mm -hmm. the product supporting its safety and efficacy And so I felt like we kind of reached a sticking point to where we were only going to be able to grow further if we had a clinical trial supporting the safety and efficacy of the product that we could share to the equine veterinary community as a whole. So actually, Texas A&M did did not approach us. um, Actually, uh, an executive from from another veterinary pharmaceutical distributor, uh, Kim Allen, who was uh, executive with uh, Henry Schein, was good friends with the dean of the Texas A&M Vet School, and the dean was talking about this hotshot surgeon that they had just hired, Dr. Ashley Watts, um, and, and she had just recently joined Texas A&M. She made an introduction between Dr. Watts and I. Dr. Watts, you know, not unlike a, a lot of other PhDs and veterinarians, were intrigued by the science behind resveratrol, was familiar with some of the clinical trials that were being conducted in human medicine, and uh, I think this is probably one of the first clinical trials that she worked on as well um, when she had just joined Texas a and So basically started the, the clinical trial in 2013, and it took three years for the clinical trial to wrap up. So 2013 to 2016. Yeah, I think
0: people don't really realize how long those trials, especially when you're working with a control group of, of horses, what all goes into maintaining that, that trial you know without having any um any sort of interruptions and so between going back to kind of the the in between there was there ever a point where you thought maybe this was wasn't going to work out
1: yeah there there certainly were times that i thought this wouldn't going to work out i would say i'm just like every small business owner at least that i've come in contact with there were certainly dark days in there where you just thought okay well this product is has reached its capacity. And, you know, honestly, this is not um, financially rewarding enough for me to want to continue on if this is where the ceiling is for this product. Um, You know, also coming out of the 2008-2009 recession, you know, I did do fundraising in the early stages, you know, just largely to support marketing, advertising, and sales operations. And coming out of the 2008-2009 recession, it wasn't an easy time to go out and do fundraising either. So if I had not had made it, I definitely would have thought that it was a lack of science and marketing and advertising, that combination that would have left us short. And there certainly were times that I thought, well, you know, maybe this company's run its course. I gave it the best shot that I could but I'm extremely stubborn and I'm extremely persistent. Um, and, And I really did hold a lot of hope once the clinical trial had begun because, you know, as we all know, the equine supplement market is overfilled with supplements that have no scientific basis behind them or no clinical trials behind them. So I really did hold hope. And having talked to so many veterinarians, that having a clinical trial behind the product truly would be the differentiation that it needed to to grow and excel in the marketplace.
0: You were confident in your product because I mean, even though it was still anecdotal results, it was with a you know with a. Trained anecdotal eye from veterinarians who, you know, could sense could probably sense whether it was actually working or actually, you know, they were it was a placebo effect. I mean, so so you, then you get the the results and it, you know, it basically puts into science what what everybody had been seeing, which is that it does resveratrol can actually um, affect inflammation in, in horses. So. So from there, I mean, I think, you know, that definitely put, the Equithrive and resveratrol as a, as an animal product on the map, but then you've since been pretty aggressive in terms of expanding the catalog. And I know you put a lot of thought into what goes in to each product, how much, where it comes from, you know, the synergies of each ingredient, but for the, like say the hoof product, how do you know what, what a, what a horse needs to, to maintain a good hoof? I mean, do you, are you, are you bringing in vets? Are you bringing in uh, consultants?
1: A, a lot of it's just self-study. I mean, you know, through the process of getting a PhD, it's not so much that you go in and learn everything, even about what you might, mm-hmm. the, the tiny little piece of the science world that you got your PhD in and what you might've published on. It's not that you you exhausted all the options in one particular area. It's just really about a train of thought and a systematic approach to solving problems, and through that, you learn where to find information. And, you know, thankfully, I was, I guess, midway through my PhD. You know, that's when all of the journals became available electronically. So, I was just a kid in a candy store. I'm sure every, every other PhD candidate as well to go from you know not having to go pull journals mm-hmm. from the WT Young Library on the University of Kentucky's campus to just being able to have all of this science available at your fingertips. Really, I just went and you know, just applied the same systematic approach that I did and getting my PhD mm, sure. into an entirely different field. So I would go yeah. out and read nutrition research. Yeah. I would go out and read veterinary research. Um. So I would say yeah. that was the problem. You were getting anyway. the, you
0: were getting the same education, just uh, kind of on your own time and
1: in your own home. So,
0: mm-hmm. um, but you've always you kind of always had some sort of interest in nutrition. I mean, that's
1: yeah. I mean, I've always been mindful of it, even just as as an individual for whatever reason. My mother was always um very conscientious about having us eat right when we were growing up, I'm the youngest of three boys. So she always put healthy meals on the table and nutrition and weight and physical exercise and activity is something that's always, you know, just been a big part of my life, honestly, and and continues to be. And so nutrition is one thing that I've just always had an interest in.
0: Uh, Looking ahead. I mean, what, what do you see as kind of the next frontier in terms of uh, animal nutrition Uh, untapped or just a lot of potential, what are you thinking about as you look to the future?
1: Well, I'd say on either the nutritional end or on regenerative medicine or the pharmaceutical end, in any of those three areas, I think it's going to largely mimic, you know, what's been seen in the human market and that it's going to just become more and more individualized. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot as, you know, the president of a equine focus nutritional supplement company about how we can, you know, move things further along about how we can better serve our existing customers and their animals. And, you know, the, the tough thing about individualized nutrition and or medicine is it's, it doesn't scale extremely well, you know? So I think about, you know, everything we've learned about the differences in the microbiome of humans, horses, dogs, we all have different Uh, microbiomes. We've got different bacteria and different populations in our gut. And we've seen in multiple studies that have been published in very high-powered journals now that that has profound impacts on how readily available the nutrients we ingest through food or the pharmaceuticals that we take on a daily basis, um, how much of that is getting into their bloodstream and into our bloodstream and our animals' bloodstreams and being able to exert their effects. You know the problem with that is is that you know then you have to look at almost manufacturing on a on mm-hmm. an individual by individual mm-hmm. basis as right. well. So I think finding new ways to perhaps develop similar products but have been completely tailored sure. to the individual is where I see nutrition and medicine going.
0: And. What do you, what would you say? I mean, I, I still feel like in veterinary medicine, nutrition's still sort of, a uh, um, it's, it's, it's not something that it's, there's not a lot of nutritional experts out there. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, so what do you, I mean, what do you say to somebody who would, if, if they're skeptical and they think, you know, my horse is young and healthy and they have a good diet already. I mean, what, what would you say to somebody who says, that, why, why would they need anything extra?
1: Well, I think it's that drive that we all have and that, you know, I feel like I could be a better human if if you're invested enough um, to be a horse owner, particularly a sport horse owner, you know, you always want to find that thing that's going to unlock their utmost potential, you know. So from a nutritional supplement or, or even just from a dietary perspective, you know, one of the things that I can remember As I was studying graduate school biology, there was this thing called Liebig's Law of the Minimum. And so basically that law of the minimum says that whatever nutrient is there in the most limiting amount basically limits the amount Hmm. of growth an animal animal can have. It, It limits the amount of performance that an animal has. It's kind of like
0: you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? Exactly, <laughs>
1: yeah. exactly. That's, that's a great analogy. So I think that, you know, it's, it, it's hard to know from just going in and measuring, you know, the concentration of a nutrient in the blood, you know, in some cases and some of the fat soluble um, nutrients maybe be looking in hair is better. Um, but in many cases, it's impractical to find those nutrient deficiencies, and it might not even be a deficiency. It might be that you're meeting the critical minimum level, but if you had a little bit more, your horse would grow that much faster or your horse would run that much faster or jump that much higher. Um, So I I think in, in many situations from a nutritional perspective, we think that these diets have been formulated to meet the minimum requirements of every given vitamin and mineral, but there's also an optimal level and that optimal level is probably different for every horse. Again, going back to if you also consider the ways that we're metabolizing what we consume, it doesn't all go in our body and end up in our bloodstream. It basically is being digested by our own stomach, but the bacteria that live within us as well. So I think, um, I think you have, you have
0: a lot more reading to do is what you're saying. There's a lot more you've learned. You've come a long way. You brought the company a long way. Um, but there's still a lot to, a lot to be done, a lot to unearth, um, and and a lot more opportunity to really improve the lives and and performance of, of our pets.
1: Yeah, I, I think so without a doubt. I mean, I think we've come a really long way, but I think we're, with this individualized medicine and, and knowing how much difference there is from individual to individual within a herd, a species, whatever you'd want to call it, I think does open up a new frontier in individualized medicine that we're just embarking on.
0: Well, Pat, I think that, um, that covers a lot of it. If There's a lot more information on Equithrive.com, of course, or just feel free to give us a call. Ask for Pat. He's in the office most of the time. Um, always appreciated. Thank you, John. Choosing the right supplements for your horses can often feel like a chore and you got enough of those. So think EquiThrive when it comes to the health and performance of your equine athletes from clinically proven joint support to essential performance nutrition. Equithrive products are developed with care, backed by science, and ready to go to work for you. So stop wasting your time and your money on unproven products. Equithrive has you covered. Visit Equithrive.com today.